Audio Gyan with Kedar Nimkar, a podcast that documents insightful conversations with Indian designers, artists, musicians, writers, thinkers, and creatives of all types. Catch us on iTunes or visit audiogyan.com for more Gyan sessions. Here's your host, Kedar Nimkar. Vijay Dhundopan Tendulkar, born on 6th January 1928 and passed away on 19th May 2008. Tendulkar Saab was. or should i call is an unarguably a leading indian playwright movie and television writer literally essayist political journalist and social commentator he is best known for his plays shantata court chalu ahe 1967 ghasiram kotwal 1972 and sakaram binder also in 1972 welcome to audio gan biographies today we'll be documenting vijay tendulkar with a bit of help from ramu ramanathan Ramu is an Indian playwright director with a claim place to his credit. Ramu has previously been a guest on episode 29th of season 1. Uh he spoke about stage life characters and Ramu is a go-to person to understand the tidbits of Indian theater so do give it that episode also a listen. So welcome Ramu sir and uh, actually welcome back and thank you for giving your time it's again like a real honor to have you on audio again we must thank you kedar for the work that you are doing in documenting some absolute gems who i mean i've heard a lot of the episodes some of them are absolutely marvelous so thank you oh thanks thanks <laughs> i'm honored that you're listening to it yeah sure uh to f- for the listeners i have like three uh, announcements before we start so first uh, is actually for you ramu uh in my passion or say naiveness or ignorance i shall call i've been thus interviewed legends like makran sathe atul pethe sunil shanbag and few of the you and few of the other stalwarts of uh, theater world but i'm totally aware of my position and it's purely like a role of a documenter mm-hmm. and not really like a subject expert so mm-hmm. please excuse me for like naive questions in the flow if, if sure <laughs> uh secondly uh with the backdrop of current unrest in the country this is for the listeners we are documenting vijay tendulkar uh, who was a playwright who dares to speak uncomfortable truths uh his remarks about politicians and indeed middle class society can make you uncomfortable so please listen at your own will <laughs> mm. uh third and the last again to the listeners uh, we'll try and document this in a two part episode part 1 which is uh, this one we'll try and ask few questions to set context to understand um vijay tendulkar saab uh, in a more human way and his uh, work and his philosophies uh which will be uh documented by ramu ramanathan and in the second part we'll sit back and listen to like a beautiful narration about uh theater and violence uh, which is a piece which uh, ramu has written so yeah i mean let's <laughs> let's start so uh so ramu sir i want to understand like i was very curious to know and obviously my preliminary research uh, found out that uh his writing was slightly different uh, especially when he started with manus nawatsa bet uh, man mm. is an island mm. so was one of his first plays and was very remarkable so mm. uh people had never heard such dialogues on theater and also in our earlier episode when you said when i asked you what was happening during uh the different language from shakespeare to the other places so in that you mentioned that 
even the courtroom dramas were now coming to living room uh, mm. Mm. spaces That's so true. the language change and things change so you have any insight why did vijay saab or tendulkar uh, saab yeah tendulkar uh-huh. saab started mm. this sort of a, what were his influences what was mm. going around then so uh, i think that made him right two or three things which i in the case of any artist we need to take that into cognizance uh, number one is that uh, he was not just a playwright he was also a journalist so one of the things that happens in journalism is uh, you know you're very familiar with uh, boli bhasha colloquialism so the language that is spoken by the people he must be interviewing so be it uh, you know police officers in uh, police stations politicians what have you so that is one part of it so you're picking up sentences which are not necessarily literate in the in the in the truly refined sense of the term so that is one aspect of it the second aspect of it is that what you have to understand is that prior to tendulkar saab there was a huge tradition of theater in maharashtra itself so if you look at the you know the two major playwrights that emerged from nashik kanetkar and shirvadkar and you know and then there are a whole lot of other traditions that are there the kind of plays that were transpiring or being staged in shivaji and so on and so forth to a large extent even though they were living room uh, plays and so on uh, one of the things with the language was a it was alankarik mm-hmm. uh, what we would say you know rhetorical uh, so formulations were necessary either over romanticized over lyrical the sentences would be very grand very, very pompous there would be lots and lots of metaphors and visual imagery and so on and so forth and that is a point of time when a very young tendulkar sees this and he is contrasting these two worlds this world of journalism where he is hearing these half sentences and he is hearing this language which he realizes nobody speaks like this anymore mm-hmm. uh, you know the kind of conversation that you and i have today in modern society or anywhere else across maharashtra that nobody has nobody talks like this except for you know politicians on republic day politicians <laughs> on independence because that is the way you are expected to speak mm-hmm. right you are when you are addressing the nation or when you are addressing a large gathering of 5 lakh people 10 lakh people at that point you are expected to be larger than life you can't be obviously going into nitty gritties of you know gdp and those kind of things mm-hmm. and sorry uh, in this uh, what he was observing these long sentences and more flowery language mm-hmm. uh, was it because of the subject also they were like mythological subjects not necessary or- but that was the way people spoke so i mean just to give you a reference if you look at the old movie say prithviraj kapoor 1950s 1960s even if he's ordering or requesting his servant to get him a glass of water he would do it in a tone which would be so bombastic so rhetorical so lyrical you know it would not be done so the whole nature of uh, speech was uh, mm-hmm. you know in that form and then the third thing that happened i mean i i will not say each of this is uh, happened at the same point of time but broadly i mean if you look at those 15 20 years is for example the creation of something like chabildas which i think was the center point of everything uh, good that transpired in avanga theater or in that kind of modern now chabildas was in if you look at the geographical location since you are also a mumbai child is probably about half a kilometer 1 kilometer away from shivaji mandir so everything that the theater within shivaji mandir stood for chabildas was an antithesis to that so tendulkar mm-hmm. saab was also taking you know in a way not just tendulkar saab a whole lot of other playwrights were also taking panga with that kind of play now for our viewers who are not familiar with what is the distinction between a shivaji mandir and a, a, a chabildas is shivaji mandir would be a 1000 plus seater with a balcony and till the, i think till the mill strike of the 84 the balcony used to be booked first and then uh, 
the lower stalls and so on where the you know more expensive tickets were and this is a typical proscenium stage where you have audience facing you and uh, you know the play transpires actors typically would come to the edge of the stage and talk hmm. so they had to be a loud because acoustics were not very good and then you had to be make sure that the last person who's seated in the balcony can hear you so necessarily a certain kind of theater it had to be you see it had hmm. to be static it had to be two dimensional in that sense and um, it had to cater to everybody the you know the, the the sort of intelligentsia that sat in the first five rows plus of course the people who sat in the back rows so obviously it started catering to a particular kind of audience you mm-hmm. see and uh, a lot of uh, uh, middle class housewives uh, so maharashtra is one of the few places where i re- i think about 40% of the audience is women which is an extraordinary thing and this includes independent women who buy their own ticket and go and see a play you know mm-hmm. today being international women's day i mean it's something that one must acknowledge mm-hmm. so chabaldas was diametrically the opposite of it it was on the third or fourth floor of a municipal school you it was a rickety space it was a dingy space but the thing was that instead of having a two dimensional uh, proscenium stage you could play on all four sides so it is what you call total theater so you could have audience on all four sides uh you know the proximity at which you and i are seated today sometimes the actor you would have a nasiruddin shah or a uh, amrish puri you know seated as close or performing as close as this and you're watching them so they could actually afford to whisper mm-hmm. they could actually afford to turn their back to an audience and talk so i remember at that point of time when say uh, theater unit for example when dubey saab had staged some of these plays one of the biggest complaints from the theater going audience was this is not acting and this was the era when amol palekar and nasiruddin shah and amrish puri were being born right mm-hmm. so you had actors of that caliber now giving voice to these characters all right mm-hmm. and the first reaction was this is not acting uh because they were accustomed to a kashinath ganekar you know that style of a prithviraj kapoor so it was all everything had you know an actor had to behave like an actor very bombastic very you know exaggerated exaggerated yeah so this was the big change so one of the things about tendulkar saab was he was always known as the playwright of the half sentence and just to illustrate the point i would say is that for example if i would be watching a play in uh, uh, on shivaji mandir uh, I, you know there is a boy and a girl and the boy is asking the girl out for a date he would say something to the effect of yete ka apan jaau bahar chaha piyayla ho ho mi pan yete chaha piyayla kuthe jaau apan vagaire you know this kind of a thing and a lot of things which we already know they are giving us through the information cut to uh, tendulkar it would be yete kuthe chaha चल आता नको सो दिस इज नाउ टू कैरेक्टर्स टॉकिंग टू इच अदर इन जस्ट हाफ वर्ड्स बट देर इज सो मच दैट इज गेटिंग ऑटोमेटिकली इम्प्लाइड राइट एंड देन वी रियलाइज वॉट ही इज डूइंग बिकॉज ही इज कंप्लीटिंग यू नो यू एज एन ऑडियंस इज कंप्लीटिंग द थॉट इन अ वे सो दिस इज आई मीन इन अ वेरी अगेन अ नट शेल वॉट तेंडुलकर साहब वॉज अटेम्पटिंग टू डू विद सम ऑफ द प्लेस बट वेर डिड दिस इन्फ्लुएंस कम फ्रॉम वॉज इट लाइक इनहेरेंट ऑब्जर्वेशन एंड देन like a voice or was this happening somewhere other part of the world as well so other part of the world i mean he was again as you are aware uh, uh, you know uh, an extremely curious mind uh, so he was influences are multiple uh, again i'll give you an example because i think that illustrates it better 
So there's another contemporary of Tendulkar called Arthur Miller, and I think they were in touch with each other. And that was again one uh, other extraordinary thing which I found out later was he was in touch with about five or six of the major international playwrights of those times, mm-hmm. and that's something you know today, in spite of us being so globally interconnected, I, I don't know who my contemporary in Germany is, I don't know who my con- contemporary in the US is, but here was a man sitting here right here in Parley East. Uh, connected with a Miller, connected with a Harold Pinter, connected with a Tom Stoppard, connected with a Václav Havel, you know, and that is important. So Miller is an American, as you know, an American playwright. And like Tendulkar Saab, he became larger than life as a playwright. And one of the things I think he realized at some point of time is that he's getting gradually disconnected with American society. All right. So he had written these great plays, Death of a Salesman and, uh, you know, Crucible and so on. Uh, and, uh, you know, then there was that famous marriage with Marilyn Monroe and all that kind of thing. And then he realized that he was only moving around with the pastry crowd in the US hmm. and he needed to gradually disconnect. So even when he used to travel to new cities, he would make it a point to stay in the dirtiest suburb of that city. So he may have a booking at the, you know, Hilton or what have you, the presidential suit, but he would make it a point to go and stay in the Kamatipura of that city, for instance. Hmm. Uh, so that was one thing. And the second thing that he started doing very gradually is he started listening to voices. And the same observation that Tendulkar had in his life as a journalist, that the language that we speak on a day-to-day basis is not the language that we are speaking on stage. So what Miller started doing is that in those days, you had these Philips huge tape recorders, very bulky. Today, you can record on mobiles and dictaphones. He started placing them at newspaper vendor stalls as well as uh, flower vendors near the uh, subway stations. Hmm. And he would come in the morning and just place the railway, I mean, the recorder recorder in that. Because a huge population comes, stands there, has conversations and goes away. And then he would listen to those conversations, play back, and then pick up the notations, the tonalities, the words, the vocabulary, the linguistic patterns from those for characters that he was. So he would then start imagining who these people were and of course then start sketching out and etching out his character. So he very consciously made this sort of, you know, you would almost call this a verbal workshop, you know, you're like just randomly weaving these recorders across various spaces and then trying to pick up these little bit of uh, voice notations or what have you. Uh, Advantage in the US is fortunately or unfortunately, it's a monolingual society in the Mm -hmm. sense it's primarily English. So his work that way is easy. In our, in our, uh, you know, society, it's a little more difficult because we have so many officially, we have X number of languages, 108 languages, and unofficially, we have about 1000 odd different languages, right? So, but this is something that Tendulkar was trying to uh, look at, that theater ultimately is about language and language is evolving and how as a responsible playwright do I respond to that? And not just in stereotype, cliche, you know, cliches kind of, one is you just pick up one word, two words and, you know, you can succeed. But if you're really doing a serious study of that language, then this is the manner in which they did it. So in the case of Miller, uh, I think he was also trying to do it formally. It was an extension in the case of Tendulkar. Again, he would do it formally, but also informally in terms of, you know, he was a great observer, uh, a lot of things. So people say, you know, so-and-so is a great mimic and so on. You know, you keep hearing this uh, about actors. Uh, Playwrights are also like that. They're great mimics, but they're great mimics of linguistic uh, patterns and so on. So that was something that I think all good playwrights, all good writers uh, aim to do. I found this very interesting because 
you're also optimizing your time you're keeping a recorder sure. while you're also learning but you see the there's a problem in that playing back those tapes is a, is a huge ordeal <laughs> and listening to them and then you have to be patient because those conversations are basically going nowhere mm-hmm. and that was again something i think one learned from tendulkar uh, uh this was i think one of the conversations we had he said that you see what happens is that we always assume conversations have a beginning middle and end you see we are used mm-hmm. to having a punchline a thing he says 99% of the time a conversation has a beginning a middle and then it loops back to the beginning it never has a conclusive end we in our sort of uh, what shall i say no, myopia or our sense of self importance always conclude things you know into mini chapters mini anecdotes mini units he says life is not like that life is just a series of incoherent conversations which basically go nowhere you see mm-hmm. and it is our sort of uh, false sense of pride that we believe that these conversations are leading up to something and so somewhere you know in his later plays you see a lot more of that where you see a little bit of fragmentation the deconstruction of the language mm-hmm. and i think it's important it's an it's an important point that you know that conversations ultimately go nowhere mm-hmm. so and at the same time you know you have to tell a story on stage or you know represent a katha vastu otherwise an audience will start you know where is this going i mean they are not come to spend 2 and a half 3 hours of you know just nothingness in that sense so yep <laughs> very interesting because yeah. i want to highlight two points so you said uh, it not necessarily it, it loops back to the beginning mm. uh, but in this format of say podcast or any any other form where there is a broadcast happening maybe it needs uh, a structure uh, it needs a structure and then some take away i don't know i if they are spending some time of their to listen to this maybe that is required but one thing which i want to tell the listeners is that if you uh, like play the 29th episode again and i clearly remember uh, i was interacting with you for the first time and sure. after the first question you started as if there's a clear continuity in your mind because mm-hmm. there was no okay and then it was a start it was not that way you just started so what happens is and wo jo so tha is there's a pre dialogue which is happening in your mind so mm, yeah. i think it, this conclusive pattern is it in small talks or uh, because when you are having like a more detailed talk then yeah but it's, so it's again a couple of things the kind of conversation you and i are having on a sunday morning i'm sure there will be precisely 0.28% of the population doing this <laughs> in this kind of a formal this is a very formal structure we have we have imposed a structure on a qna right mm-hmm. and so we know there's a questioner there's an answer that you are going to ask the questions i'm hopefully going to respond to so there is a very very definitive structure we have a time constraint all those factors are already built into this so mm-hmm. it is an artificial construct but typically these would be conversations uh, you know like yesterday i went and met a, um, uh, a school friend of mine who's down you know who's suffering from cancer and uh typically what happens in these hospitals is that you're sharing a room with somebody else so while he was like uh, lying down and sleeping i was reading something and there is a patient on the other side and i was hearing their conversation those conversations are going nowhere it's between a mother and a son and the son is taking care of the mother in the next cubicle but so i i heard about four and a half hours of those conversations i actually did not know a what the relationship was and b where this other than the fact that she is a patient where this where is this con because she would talk of tukaram she was talking of dehu uh, that you should go there once so i you know if i didn't know that it was an elderly woman talking to her young son and that she is a patient who has just been operated 
I would really have no idea because there's a curtain in between, you mm-hmm. see. So I would really have no idea. So as a piece of theater, it was just marvelous. What is actually transpired? Who are these two people? If I listen to those four hours of conversation, in between the nurse would come, in between there would be food and, you know, other things that would be there. So, right. <laughs> wow. Anyway, I think we've deviated from Tendulkar a lot. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, and then what was happening in the 1960s uh, to 1990s uh, that mm. Tendulkar wanted to expresses thoughts through violins because that we'll cover in the second sure, chapter but just sure. to set context and also yeah. uh from whatever like few interviews i've heard i want to like consume a lot more about him mm. but uh, he he mentioned that he was like a really simple uh, middle class man with mm. like no no big struggles obviously inherent uh, internal struggles are different but uh, as a day to day life it mm. was a simple life going good Yeah. So where did this violence start? So again, uh, uh, there are few. Uh, so violence is a separate aspect of it. One is, of course, as I mentioned, he was a journalist. Secondly, I, uh, you know, simple uh, uh, middle class life, yes, but huge, huge amount of aspiration intellectually mm-hmm. comes from a family of you know great intellectuals, Suresh Tendulkar. I mean, if you look at that uh, family pedigree, it's immense. The mm-hmm. kind of people he was surrounded with. So we are talking of someone who dealt with ideas. uh he went beyond the realm of you know just uh, gossip you can imagine the kind of conversations that were essentially transpiring around him they were of great um, you know great importance so like the great literature of the times the great uh, policy making uh, you know decisions that were being made in delhi what are the ramifications of that happening in say rural agrarian vidarbha marathwada in those days when data was not so uh, available so that must be kept as you know in mind that here is someone who has inherited that great big tradition that is you know maharashtra is so proud of the kosambis and you know what have you so that is one aspect of it the second thing was like a lot of people of that generation there was a certain disillusionment with what we call now nehruvian socialism right so independence had been got there was great expectations and then obviously uh you know this was the transition of power where the shift happened between nehru and his daughter indira gandhi so that entire phase was happening and a lot of people started um what shall i say uh uh a being disillusioned and also disappointed with what the indian state was going to offer we were supposed to be i mean forget this whole thing that we are talking now of being a great global power fighter in economy but we were supposed to be the pinnacle of human civilization in that sense that we offered hope to the rest of you know uh, the countries in the 20th century because on the uh, one hand you had ussr one on the other hand you had the us anyway that happened uh, and then in the 70s when uh, madam gandhi was the prime minister i think at that point of time a few things happened which i think personally disturbed him a lot one was the mass scale you know rigging that happened in uh, elections be it in bihar be it in um uh, in west bengal and so on and so forth and then secondly of course the war with bangladesh and the third was of course um the rampant use of violence uh, mm-hmm. you know and indian society we had seen this happen in the 20th century with british colonial power mm-hmm. now for the first time you see the indian state unleashing it on its mm-hmm. own people mm-hmm. and he i think around that time i mean he reflects because i i didn't know him at that time but one of the things that he said was that this is a rehearsal for fascism uh because wow. you are seeing so you know for example you had jp and you had all these people the voices had started being uh, you know we had started hearing but a lot of the the crushing down was basically on student politics 
precisely an action replay of what is transpiring now the very very same thing you take the proper nouns out of the equation and you know everything else is the same how what media yeah yeah <laughs> so what uh, no i mean society plays like that history is always you see there is always a history and then there's a history below that history so it's not you know we tend to you know believe in these simple narratives about everything uh, so one of the things as i mentioned he said is that uh, what happened in the 70s was a huge eye opener because it also gave us a very very clear indication of what is possible when fascism takes over uh, when a state becomes fascist in in the true sense of the term uh and uh, you know you hear stories of some of the very very important leaders today the you know the socialists who are now heads of their own respective states which are um, in power either in delhi or in their own respective states they were the very people who were crushed by the you know <laughs> the state governments then so this is something that was going on now if you recall that previous episode all this churning is going on and ultimately as a master craftsman you have to put all this on stage so then of course you select your characters your plots your stories you also look at the reality of what is happening on stage in mumbai maharashtra at that time and then you select how you're going to strategize and you know uh, uh, how shall i say channelize this uh, you know uh, fermenting that is transpiring so this is essentially that period between 69 70 onwards all right uh, and as always as is as is happening now you have a great big middle class which you know ideally should have because he himself was a member of that particular class and you know society and he could see what was transpiring and he was just wondering why 99% of the people have been so mesmerized and hypnotized and they're not even willing to question and those who are willing to question are then you know labeled as dissenters or antinational or whatever the same same narratives because people were being locked up without charge without you know non bailable offenses and so on uh so this was basically uh you know what is transpiring and it is not just him there were also other great uh, you know writers great authors who were doing this in that time also like for example renu he returns his padmashri you know the same thing that happened about a few years ago when you know great authors were returning their awards you had the great nagarjun saying something like uh beta banaye kar ma banaye sabko bekar you know mm-hmm. so those kind of things again the same narratives that are happening right now so uh, so something was happening in bihar something was happening in gujarat where you again had student politics of the you know and where the present prime minister has emerged from that movement which was against the fascism of that time <laughs> uh, and of course tendulkar sahab in this corner of the world so things are connected it's not as if you know you have an author in uh, working in isolation and deciding that i on behalf of 1 billion indians will you know uh, challenge this state it's many people who are feeling this uh, turmoil and unrest and somewhere i think authors poets especially and playwrights they have the uh, you know they're conscience keepers in a way so they are they are hopefully willing to you know brave it out speak the truth mm-hmm. and he did it yeah, yeah. <clears throat> but these individual people so i'm digressing for a minute sure, these sure. individual great playwrights or poets uh, poets um they had their own uh, opinion they had their own stand so how was the collaboration happening because if this nuance is transferred maybe there are people in different parts of the country who are moving right now to to certain sort of uh, they are responding to what's happening right now so if they have to collaborate and like what was happening then so, so was say uh, tendulkar sahab speaking to 
someone in Nagpur or uh, no so again there are uh, yeah so there are three things one is that you have a party which is backing you so typically you it could be you know uh, for example in those days the left was considered to be a good space for progressive writers to do say for example ipta was you know broadly associated with cpim in those days so it would be that kind of a thing that you are a cultural organization doing plays protest songs etc but backed by a political party alternatively you are somebody uh, you know like a like a indulkar saab but you have a loose confederation of intellectuals academics activists uh, trade unionists etc who are working with you which is a fairly formidable bo- body you know so uh, so that happens because uh, they would be somebody would be you know uh, fighting a case in court somebody else would be uh, uh, giving a talk in the university campus etc but you are articulating the same concerns on stage so mm. so it is when we are saying multiple voices it means multiple voices in civil society it just doesn't mean uh, those kind of thing and uh, and then the third is of course the audience you know which is participating in all this and then they're picking up because it is also in a way sort of impacting what is transpiring in their day to day lives right inflation price hikes tomorrow suddenly a bank goes bust and you know your money yeah yeah and and uh, yeah unemployment was huge because the same crisis that is transpiring now about unemployment among the youth was what was transpiring then and the young generally if you look at the youth movement of what transpired post vietnam in the in america as well as what transpired in the west bank and in europe and germany and so on uh was the same thing it was basically the young who were in a way saying enough of this rubbish enough of the status quo and uh, you know this cannot carry on any further and we question you and the fundamental truth about any questioning is that you see everybody says we are questioning the government or we are questioning you know a particular multinational or a conglomerate the first premise that as you know uh, socrates taught us was that when you start asking questions you need to know the facts you cannot just start asking questions you need to know where the money is coming from where the money has been invested so for that then you have to start doing the work right on homework on it so if for example tomorrow i start questioning 370 i start questioning triple talaq i start questioning ayodhya i have to read at least 1000 page documents on each of these listen to the arguments on both sides and then arrive at a particular conclusive you know point of my own and be ability to ask questions mm. so that is something the youth started realizing in their wisdom that when we start asking these questions this is a the amount of hard work that we were doing and b um, this was what was happening the moment they didn't have answers to our questions repression you see mm. so it was repression then and repression now as well it's it's when the questions become very uncomfortable that the repression becomes the most uh, you know volatile mm-hmm. So I want generalize. Obviously, in the voices which I heard today are sure. well researched, but uh, I guess with Tendulkar Saab, it was very deep learning, research, and then questioning. Right. right. Yeah. So it's always strategies. You see, different people have different strategies. Sometimes art provides it. Sometimes politics provides it. You see. So mm-hmm. uh, it is always uh, what succeeds at that moment, and more importantly, what people remember. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Actually, I'll I'll have a small plug here because. Uh, when the demonetization happened and the new 2000 rupee note came and i think some agency in goa mm. uh, uh wrote a very big article as to how the notes are badly designed mm. and i was so uh, not angry but i was so i was like 
I was feeling very helpless to make people understand that this is like a just a commentary on the superficial aesthetics of the note, right? True. It's pink color, whatever, and nobody has gone really into the depths of is it braille friendly? Is it like what sort of cotton and tink and magnesium is mixed to make that? What's the fraud? So you talk about the deeper cases of coming up to that solution as opposed to like superficially. Swachh Bharat logo is blur. I mean, blur is not even a concern here, right? True. True. Yeah. True. So no, I'm talking yeah, that demonetization. No, it's a fair point. Uh, so as you know, I'm besides doing my playwriting and so on, I've also been associated with the print industry, yes, right? So, yeah. so one of the things we know about the eight December, this is conclusive evidence, is that there was a shortage of paper. You mm. see, and any print job, uh, forget you know, even as a small thing like a ticket for a you know a, a play, or even a book being designed or a poem or even entry passes for something. it's there is a planning stage you see you always work backwards in time that you work get your templates right you get your sizes size and then you look at the availability of paper stock inks where is it going to be done and then of course the poor man who's ultimately the you know the supervisor a press operator he is going to be responsible for these things in this particular case because they were trying to keep the whole thing so secret and hush hush because they were afraid that if it gets leaked out so i'm told that only seven or eight people were privy to this knowledge of this particular you know demonetization going to happen as a result what transpired is that you have some of the best manufacturing plants in india which are capable of printing currency but the people who are manning those uh, operations they are not aware of a what what is going to happen what is going to be the the demand supply that requirement that is there and so therefore there was a huge crisis for 3 three, three and a half months i am told so much so that there's talk of you know paper being shipped in you know flown in by chartered planes there's talk of you know paper being the currency being printed in uh, dalaru which is a you know uk based uh, currency plant which basically manufactures currencies for a whole lot of other countries including pakistan and some of the other countries in africa so this is the nature of thing right? now as a as a concerned citizen forget the politics of all this i should just know that what was the cost of this operation and why were we so unprepared you see mm-hmm. if you're not going to trust your own operation manager who's manning and running those presses then there's something fundamentally wrong right he's a technical guy he needs to know what has to be done it's like a cook in a uh, you know a chef in a in a five star you have invited 1000 people but you have forgotten to inform him so he has not organized any of the ingredients and suddenly at 7 in the evening you say okay aaj 8 baje daawat hai aap khana taiyar karna unfair very unfair and it's unfair on the indian citizen i feel yeah i understand like this the the insights which you provide and obviously documenting like a legend like tendulkar sahab sure. would be uh, like yeah it, there's no time limit to that but uh, so i want to understand what was his trajectory of him expressing say violence or uh, whatever his agitation was against the establishment uh, throughout his plays uh, the most like uh, the like gidhade probably would be like a surge in his uh, uh, expression mm. and then obviously there's huge body of work but one which is more familiar say kamla mm. so from that to there was it increasing was it decreasing and yeah. i i wanted like to ask you this because uh, in one of the interviews with uh, um which is online with was uh, on with vasantrao deshpande oh, okay. uh, he said uh, <laughs> no uh, it's pula deshpande and vasantrao deshpande oh, talking okay, okay. and he said ki ata tumcha vaya barobar 
ती जी उसळती ताण आहे ती कमी होते का काय होते आणि कमी होते तो त्यांनी आज की का वयामुळे का विचारांमुळे तो दॅट इज द प्रिमाइस विच आय वॉन्ट टू आज की ॲज ही as he grew mm. was the agitation more or was it the so it's not a question of agitation i mean we can discuss specific plays which i think we'll come to but mm. i think <clears throat> there were two three things that he was uh, you know consciously suggesting that there is a certain facade there is a certain hypocrisy with the middle class right mm. so for example there is all this data that emerged in i think la- four years or five years ago this you know uh, post nirbhaya when there was the incident that transpired in delhi and so on and then there was this whole thing of sexual assault so one is reported and one is unreported and then you come to know that in the unreported it's about 95% of it is within the family within the household so obviously there is some huge level of you know cruelty and violence which is transpiring within those four walls which because we are indian society to a large extent remains hidden and you know because मुंह किसको दिखाएंगे फिर लड़की शादी के लिए तैयार ऑल दीज सॉर्ट ऑफ कल्चरल एंड ट्रेट्स दैट वर देयर सो दिस दिस सॉर्ट ऑफ यू नो हिपोक्रेसी दैट एग्जिस्टेड इन सॉर्ट ऑफ मिडिल क्लास सोसाइटी वॉज समथिंग दैट तेंडुलकर वॉज वेरी वेरी क्रिटिकल अबाउट यू नो कॉन्शियसली एंड एंड सम पीपल सेड इवन यू नो मोर देन ही शुड हैव so you know you always have playwrights which are always uh, questioning and they have two or three of broad themes this was definitely one of the themes in his particular life uh and then like you know i gave you that instance of arthur miller and you know formally doing something with that verbal uh, you know documentation through the record so that was something that he started doing uh, at that point of time because he was also associated with cjp and all these organizations he came to know of what was happening with under trial prisoners in our indian prisons uh so he did a he did a documentation in 72 73 and this was along with the jawaharlal nehru fellowship and basically what it entailed him to do was couple of things it, he could spend some time very consciously and visit indian prisons and then talk to those prisoners who had uh, who were charged with um, you know uh, capital punishment of uh, some kind and either it was a sort of you know murder or whatever or a manslaughter and so on and then he would have these long conversations with those people inside the prison and then his idea was, it was not a vicarious thing that i want to know how perverted they were or you know what was the deviancy in their mind and so on and um, uh, so uh, he essentially was trying to understand that how normalized everything is you know in today's mm-hmm. thing and there was this sort of one or two percent trait of violence which happened or in, or in some cases it so happened that it was so subconscious or unconscious so this was the 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 nature of documentation and i recall he used to then do this 3 to 4 hour talk which was in public domain where he would speak and he showed us in those days uh, you know uh, that world of ppt where he would show and tell literally walk through about 20 25 of these cases and give us a little insight into each of the conversations that he had um he had given a talk i recall in uh, mumbai and at that point of time he sort of spoke about uh, a couple of things which i'll just share those two anecdotes this is a published uh, speech it's a little booklet which somehow has disappeared from the planet so this might be sort of a, a rare gem for your readers uh, he was uh, again people f- uh, forget about him is he was a very good storyteller 
So you, uh, two things he managed to do. One was make you very comfortable and then weave this magic of words in which, you know, you've never heard stories like this. So it was like your Nana Nani ki kahaniya, like, you know, what your grandmother would tell you in the good old days, except these would be really gruesome stories, right? Mm-hmm. So there were two stories that he used to talk about when he, one was when he was a child in uh, Kolhapur and then subsequently he used to live in Mulund. So he, he had wandered around Mumbai a fair bit, you know, moving from house to house. Uh, so the first one, I'll just read out what was there in that talk. It was the 1930s. Tendulkar was a teenager in Kolhapur. The breaking news was a man had killed seven family members with an axe. Crowds had gathered. The police refused to enter the old single-story chawl. Such was the fury of the killer. More and more people in Kolhapur joined the crowds. Then the military was called to maintain law and order. There were no photograph there was no photograph of the killer but the special afternoon editions eulogized the events booklets which were biographies were sold in the evening they made a statue of the killer this statue was of mud it was created and then felicitated villagers from neighboring villages arrived in their bullock carts soon the site became a yatra sthal a cold blooded killer became a hero of our times why 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 so this is what tendulkar had shared and the second one was when he was in mulund and he used to stay alone in those days he had just arrived in mumbai and i think he was staying solo uh then tendulkar spoke about the time he was a tenant in mulund where he lived in a single storied barak like brick chawl now this is remember in in that era of mulund when not today's mulund where you have the high rise and you have the you know the godrej factory <laughs> complexes so tendulkar worked in a newspaper it was a no moon night a night of the dacoits there was darkness Tendulkar was enveloped by fear no one in the vicinity he locked the door and extinguished the kerosene lamp stifling silence he heard voices he peered through a keyhole the voices moved on then he recognized the movement of the local mali so he stepped out to relieve himself then tendulkar and the mali spoke all through the night tendulkar the journalist asked the questions and the mali replied the tone matter of fact the face like a statue the mali spoke about his past how he bootlegged the dacaitry the number of murders he committed no pride no claims no drama next morning when tendulkar was leaving for work for his journalist uh, to his journalist uh, office the mali was watering the plants he was humming a well known patriotic song so who is a murderer what is cold blooded define crime so this is uh, you know to answer your questions i think these two anecdotes should suffice i mean there are many more but one can mm-hmm. these two would i think help beautiful mm-hmm. so some of his actually i don't know i don't have a count out of 27 i think 19 were censored Mm. yeah something like that mm-hmm. i i don't uh, this could be factually wrong yeah. but uh, yeah a lot of plays were censored right so mm. what made him write uh, so boldly uh, despite being censored and continue to do that so few things one is like the work itself i'll just recount because i think this is something we should share when we talk of body of work and you know and today you have people like me who claim to have body of work but this, listen to tendulkar it is 28 full length plays seven collection of one acts six collection of children's plays four collections of short stories three collections of essays a novel 17 film scripts and this was just 50 years right of work so 
plus of course talks and then things like what I just uh, mentioned this Nehru fellowship plus the work that he did with CJP and a whole lot of other things and columns to of course yeah so journalism is separate because separate, I mean he's yeah. doing day to day it's like a 9 to 5 that was his bread and butter so again people tend to forget that he used to earn uh, as a journalist and playwriting was sort of incidental increment and whatever money i think he has received i've heard i've heard fabulous stories of his magnanimity where he has landed up in the house of someone absolutely obscure and you know just distributed money which i'm sure he's got from royalty or copyright or whatever he's given money to translators and he has given money see and this is a talent he has gone and given money to enemies people who have abused him in public and who have destroyed his you know reputation you would hear a story of him and just uh, land up because that person is suffering from you know cirrhosis of the liver and he will just go and in those days offer 50000 1 lakh and completely without any drama meaning not that there are 10 press people behind him and so on he would go later you will hear the story from that person not from tendulkar tendulkar maintained a stoic silence in all this so th- this i think is a remarkable thing that you you see you forgive your enemies or not forgive your enemies enemies is too harsh a term but you you are accepting of counter uh, views anyway coming back to your specific questions again i can give you innumerable instances but the one big lesson that we learn from tendulkar and i think this would help you is that his battles with the censor board is are well known and typically it's you know it comes back to that whole student politics things you are asking fundamental questions which are meant to be asked you see as part of any civil society as part of any evolving society we have to ask this question you have to ask these questions of the media you have to ask this question of the courts you have to ask this question of the people who are governing the land whether it is you know bureaucrats whether it is politicians whether it's our industrialists and so on so these questions have to be asked now obviously because these are to a large extent uncomfortable questions people do not want you to answer so the first thing is clamp down you know you silence all right so say in the case of um, uh, sakaram binder when it happened and if you read uh, kamlakar sarang's well documented book on it i think that's fabulous or even what transpired later with ghashiram uh, these the 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 sort of reaction from society will emerge uh, so one of the lessons we learned from tendulkar and i'll keep this short is that you see there in for example uh in the case of sakaram there was this thing of you know the abuses because sakaram is that kind of a character he emerges from the bastis and the play starts off with four wonderful expletives and you know so on and so forth so the first thing that the censor board wanted was to you know snipe those off so when we had sort of interacted with tendulkar much later he said that look they will do what they have to do we have to do what we have to do that was number one and secondly he says that if you need to as part of the colloquial idiom of a character include something then my suggestion to all of you is add whatever you're doing x into 4x so even if they cut what they cut you will get what you want mm-hmm. all right so so the, he said that the point is not to start getting too worked up and hassle because a lot of people do get very hassled you see oh usne mere play ka ya mere masterpiece ka do line kaat diya ya what have you mm-hmm. which is genuine i'm not saying that it is it's a fake thing but you said you know as an artist you have to be combating that today you're living in a particular kind of society in india and you're fighting with certain kind of orthodoxy or certain kind of very rigid understanding of what theater and art should be right mm. so how do you combat that one is you sit and keep having an hour you don't have time for that right you you want to write your next play your job is not to sit there 
and start having argument with the chief of censor board over you know four days five days of tea or what have you so then you just find a way of just either uh you know you you beat the system basically mm-hmm. so that is a lesson i think one has uh, learned from him and and constantly there has been a tussle either with a formal censor uh, or from civil society mm-hmm. so again there's a very interesting book by somebody called deepak ghare uh, who has written about the journey of uh, kashiram and that is actually what transpired with the play production right from the time when tendulkar read the play uh, to the members of pda how there was a split between the sort of you know the <laughs> the orthodox conservative part of the group and the young rebellious part of the group and how there were two diametrically opposite opinions about the play and then how the split happened within a the group pda the split that happened in pune brahmin society and then the reaction and then of course how the play was mounted how jabbar used to come from down he was a doctor and in the middle of his practice he would take a train come to pune rehearse the play with the members go back to his uh, thing satish alekar used to help out with that and then finally the big controversy the play was to go to uh, berlin for a uh, festival in those days it was a very prestigious thing and the shivasena in those days which was under the leadership of bal thakre had said that no this play is um, is an insult to uh you know uh the peshwai society over here and it's a criticism and critique of shivasena so we will not let this play go because it sort of rebukes indian society and then what happened you know the behind the the behind the room the back room strategies the meetings etc and finally that air india flight which was taking off uh how about because you see if you remember gashiram it has got a huge cast so it is not as if 100 people can land up at the airport because the shiv sainik said that we will not let these people go so how some of them came in on a scooter somebody was taken right to the runway somebody landed up incognito because shiv sainik controls the trade union at the airports right so they were controlling the thing so the entire theater academy team had to come in ones and twos in sort of incognito right and then finally they sneak into this plane and the plane takes off and when the plane takes off how they all start singing songs from gashiram as a part of the celebration it's a, it's a great story right <laughs> of how these you know so when we talk of standing up and things it's it's these simple things theater people have these are all the tools we have it's not as if we are, we can always you know uh <laughs> do a mass demonstration or something ultimately the show must go on and that's what they did so there is a little book by deepak ghare it's a thriller one must read it <laughs> definitely yeah. definitely wow it's so so yeah. brilliant <laughs> moving on to the last uh, question of this section uh, of this part so you mentioned that 4x uh you show 4x <laughs> yeah, right and yeah. uh i want to have a plug here again because i somehow try and hoping that the listener base is or design focus as well and one which is i don't know this is i'm not theoretically understood or but just from an experience standpoint i've realized this that even when you are standing for something against the business or sure. something against uh, the marketing team yeah. being a designer you you know that there is some sort of a dependency to run the business so you have to let go certain battles of course but then in the battle which you are picking up uh you stand like way too ahead of what is uh where you have to land so 4x wala x i can clearly map there mm. but that is dangerous in the today's time right so the question is mainly uh that what is the one thing which a young generation playwright or a or a like someone who wants to understand tendulkar part, part mm. a and second is uh what what 
were the conflicts or what were the things which can we avoid by looking at this person as well because a lot of things a lot of time what happens is we we look at the great part of but course. i'm sure when we speak to that person he uh, in his humble opinion will always say that i've made mistakes i have mm. to come up so in that case if we borrow certain inspiration from the so one good, good thing one good thing that all playwrights should seek from tendulkar and one not so yes so yes. the good thing i think is right uh and right bloody good plays because i think something we underestimate about the man that he wrote and he could write anywhere like right now we are seated over here if he was with us and he was told to sit on that broken chair and said right he will write there will be no fuss about that mm. he could write anywhere and any place and that is an extraordinary uh, talent and ability you see we want atmosphere we want the right thing a coffee chair whatever i mean you know there are certain idiosyncrasies everybody has i had a remarkable my i think my last um, meet with him was when he was in pune and he you know ashok kulkarni who who took very 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 good care of him uh, had him in that uh, you know uh, uh, nursing home in pune very uh, i think his last few days were in that place and then close friends were informed that sir is not sort of well and i think i was one of them who went to visit him now when when uh, when one uh, went him he was not told to uh, he was not supposed to talk because that tired him so what he would do is he would scribble notes right and then he would give it to you then you would read and then you could now for some reason when i went to meet him i don't know why this happened was i somehow assumed that even i had to reply scribbling notes and this went on for quite some time that he scribbling notes and he is this thing and then finally after about half an hour ashok because the next person had to come secondly he had to be given rest he comes to me and he says that uh, uh, are you can talk ramu <laughs> there is no this thing on you and i said ho re ho ho na ya whatever and then he said something interesting no let this be it's after a long time that i am i am enjoying writing again on uh, you know and and that's the point i realized that that was something that kept him going i mean forget this little anecdote and this and that that but the fact that he he genuinely derived a lot of pleasure in writing and that is something that has to happen it's not something that you contrive to do right mm. it's like uh, you know i know people who just enjoy uh listening to really great music you know like a mukul shiv putra or a venkatesh kumar in the morning and you know i mean there is nothing greater that brings a greater joy to them or watering plants or what have you hmm. so with tendulkar sahab it was like that writing was like like orgasm for him, <laughs> in the purest sense of the term and he could do it anywhere and any place and that i've really seen that i there was an uh, 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 you know there was something that was happening in mulund i think at kalidas and he, we were in the wings and something was happening on stage and uh, someone came to him saying i want something and he, while that program was going on he had a little waiting time in the wings about 15 20 minutes he just asked for a piece of paper and something and within that time in very very neat handwriting he had written two pages out which was given handwritten to that and it got published in the next day's newspaper wow. you know so i mean a of course talent craft intelligence all those things matter but the fact that he could do it mm -hmm. and he always wanted to do it the one thing that i suspect and i say this with all sort of humility and whatever uh, without you know any affront to him is that uh, the way he looked at uh, or the way his plays looked at women is something that i think we need to relook at today because i think there is a certain kind of patriarchy there is a certain kind of male a uh, vision to all his plays uh, you know women are second nature or at times even inferior in terms of how he has positioned them 
Uh, and of course, there have been, you know, used discussions, lots and lots of articles uh, that are, and this is something we have discussed with him. You see, don't forget, this is again a state with a huge and very proud legacy of women tradition. You have Savitri Bai Phule, Tara Bai Shinde, uh, you know, uh, Pandita Ramabai. I mean, you name it, uh, innumerable great women who have walked on the soils of this particular land. So that was something that we always, you know, used to ask him uh, that, you know, considering that you have such a, powerful progressive tradition of women independent autonomous thought why uh, such timid women or such regressive women in your place and of course I mean we had uh, our ups and downs and afrata free about it but the fact is that that is something I feel uh, uh, needs to be re-looked at re-thought recalibrated whatever mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah I, I frankly don't have any uh, uh, like I completely understand it's it's like a lifelong journey to understand sure, such a great sure, person. Sure, so sure. I would just conclude by saying thank you for giving your <laughs> time. And we'll conclude uh, one what piece which you have written That's right, uh, yeah. in the second episode. So thanks for this episode. Thank and you, Kedar Bhav. Thank you, thank you. Thank you. That's it. And that's it from today's Gyan session. Catch us on iTunes, Savan, Stitcher or any podcasting app you use. Do rate us on iTunes and follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Stay tuned for more Gyan on audiogyan.com. Till then, bye! Hello! It's been a great week on the IBM Podcast Network. On this round is on me. Gauri is joined by Shweta Nanda. They talk about the financial independence and how it is to be a woman entrepreneur. On Anish Thing, Anish welcomes ultra-marathon runner Shivani Gharat. Shivani shares her journey of how she ran her first marathon, the mindset of a runner, and what it actually takes to run a full marathon. On Cock and Bull, Cyrus, Naveen, Akash and Shreyas talk about the Korean band BTS serving in the military and its repercussions. On Think Fast, Varun and Suchita discuss Wing Greens and their latest acquisitions and about the Indian sexual wellness market. And on Shuniwan, Sheila Datya is joined by Dinika Bhatia, CEO and founder of Natigritis. They talk about coming from a business family and Dinika's journey in creating healthy and guilt-free snacking. Once again, don't forget to visit our merch store on ivmpodcast.com. We have some exciting new merch out there for you. Also, do follow us on social media. We are IVM Podcasts on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram and LinkedIn. And do remember to spread the word about these shows and any other shows you might be listening to. Appreciate them, rate them and review them wherever you are listening to them. You can also check out all our other shows on youtube.com slash IBM Podcasts. And finally, we would like to thank our sponsors this week. Volvo XC40 Recharge, Bumble, Heads Up for Tales, Kotak Privy League Program and HDFC Mutual Fund. Thanks guys, without you this would not be possible. Do you often find yourself surrounded by conversations about Web3, Blockchain, NFTs, DAOs? What are these terms and how do they affect our future on the internet? 
so many questions but don't worry we've got answers to all your questions hi i'm eklavya bhattacharya and on our show future proofing we try to decode the impact of these future technologies on various industries with experts and tech enthusiasts tune into new episodes coming out every thursday on the ivm podcast app and the website or wherever you get your podcasts from